The Shaggy Jenkins Show. We have to make Russia great again. On the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Chicken Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome to it. It's Thanksgiving week, and today, well, we'll talk about why you're probably thankful not to be in California. Life-saving drugs, a Senate investigation, finding out that life-saving could be more costly. Plus, we'll talk about the shooting in Chicago and so much more as we get into today's topics. Hey, before we get into all of that, welcome to my show. I am, of course, your host, a critical thinker, problem solver, guy just left of normal insane, but always centered in common sense. My name is Shaggy Jenkins, and I can be found, uh, well, wherever fine internet is served at shaggyjenkins.com or wherever fine social media is served at Shaggy Live. Okay, let's get into our our stories of the day and we begin with the shooting that happened yesterday in Chicago now this is one of those stories that is still kind of unfolding and well nobody really knows at this moment uh, things that sparked this whole thing off now according to witnesses a guy confronted a girl in front of a Chicago hospital and well Things went a little crazy there, okay? Right out in front of Mercy Hospital, a a man and a woman were having a confrontation over what seemed to be like a, a broken engagement or something like that. And then, well, that's just it. He shot her. Uh, brandishing a handgun, shooting her multiple times, then walking over to where she was on the ground and shooting her a couple more times. Now, you think that that's the worst case scenario. No, he then walks into the ER and starts opening fire. He struck one officer, injuring him, and that officer at the moment is still seeking medical care. Uh, A second officer was shot in the holster. And if you want to talk about some luck, a, a bullet hit this officer's gun burying itself partly in his holster with bullet fragments found in the officer's pocket after the shooting took place. Now, I know that this is one of those rare cases that I could say it, but it looks like a gun stopped gun violence. Okay, look, all jokes aside, it's another tragic shooting in the United States. And once again, we got to ask ourselves, what kind of culture are we in where men... Specifically men, because look, I don't know if you've been following the news as closely as I have, but there's been no mass shootings from women of any color. I I, I checked a lot. There's none of them. So there there's that. But what is it when, when it comes to men in this country that makes them say, ah, today is the day that I am going to get even with everybody and a gun is the best way to do it. I, I, I know that. You're probably thinking, oh, Shaggy, well, now is the time that we start talking about gun regulation and was the guy mentally ill, was he not mentally ill, and all the other stuff and rigmarole that we usually talk about in the aftermath of shootings. But today, instead, I'm going to ask a very simple question. What is wrong with men in America? Now, that might not seem like that tough of a question, but think about it 
really carefully because over the past few weeks, we've had story after story after story on this show where some guy gets a little disgruntled, either walks out to his car or already has the weapon on him, brandishes it, and then something stupid happens. We have not heard a lot of these stories out of communities that aren't Caucasian, so there's that, but for the most part, actually, for all the parts that I could scour in the headlines the past couple of weeks, the only ones committing gun violence in the United States so far seem to be dudes. And I don't know how to say this, but that that doesn't look well for the rest of us. Now, I know that if you're a guy, you're probably thinking, Oh, God, Shaggy, don't be ridiculous. You're just oversimplifying gender kind of violence. Okay, okay, okay. Well, let's move on to another story then, and then you tell me what you think of this. Not too long ago, I had started coverage of a group called the Proud Boys. Now, you probably have heard some of the stories that we've had on the show, including things about how their founder has uh, been caught on tape doing a couple of things, uh, including throwing the old Sieg Heil in public. Uh, Their group has been, at least according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, linked to white supremacy as well as now, in the latest round of, uh, oh my God, we're finally calling the thing that is the by its actual name, the Proud Boys, at least according to the FBI, recently have been identified as a hate group. Now, I don't know how to tell you this, but the Proud Boys is one of those guys that came along uh, right after the formation of the alt-right not too long ago. Actually, it wasn't formed so much as it was codified under a new name. And and when the alt-right came into being, of course, groups like the Proud Boys were, well, in a word, proud to jump on this whole bandwagon of we should look out for the the, the, the disappearing middle class in America. That secretly means white, Caucasian, pale, pasty, honky cracker, whatever you want to call them, men. Well, the Proud Boys, not too long ago, and, and you'll remember this story. We talked about this New York City kind of confrontation that happened outside of the Republican Club in the aftermath of a speech by... Their founder, a guy by the name of Gavin McGinnis, okay? Now, here's the thing. At that rally, of course, there was a lot of white supremacy spewed verbally. But then, after it, well, several Proud Boys decided to get out onto the street and engage with some far-left protesters. Now... That confrontation, of course, led to a bunch of different arrests. And now the Clark County uh, Sheriff's Department has finally completed its report from the August incident. And what they say is basically things that we all know. The Proud Boys are a far-right, leaning, extremist group with ties to, very close ties, mind you, to white supremacy activity as well as other white supremacist group. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center has already been on this bandwagon, designating the group as a hate group way, way back a couple of years ago. But this is the thing. 
when they came out, they were formed right around the summer of 2016, when a lot of these groups actually came out and, well, officially said, we're here. Ironically, the summer of 2016 seems to be the rise of a lot of white nationalist groups. Now, of course, they... uh, initially tried to water it down and 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 I when I say water it down I I mean that in all comical senses of the words the proud boys used to refer to themselves as proud western chauvinist that believe west is best yeah in other words if you're from the eurocentric side of civilization you represent the best quality ever and if you're anything else, well, we hate you and we'll marginalize you and do whatever is necessary to take rights away from you because you don't deserve the same things that we do, being those proud Western chauvinists. Now, they say, the Proud Boys themselves, time and time again have come out and said that they have no ties to any other alt-right group. That is categorically false. They say that they have no ties to white supremacy. That is categorically false. And, of course, when they say that they uh, aren't really all that bad, let's, let's just take a moment to remember that not only are they associated with white nationalism, they're also a part of an Islamophobic or anti-Muslim movement. And just as long as we're throwing it out there, some good old-fashioned misogyny. Yeah. I mean, come on. If, you, if you're going to alienate everybody, might as well just alienate people that are exactly the same race as you and just have some different junk downstairs. But that's one of the things that kind of gets me because... With all of these groups coming out, no one, loudly enough, seems to be pointing to a certain event that that kicked off all of these groups coming together like some sort of weird uh, Justice League for white people. Ugh. God, what a horrible image. But, um... The Anti-Diversity League, as it is, uh, in this country did start to gain in popularity around the summer of 2016. And groups like the Proud Boys, you know, are just another example of every time I get on this show and say, Hey, we're flirting with some very dangerous things here in this country. Well, they're kind of my proof, and yet... Mainstream media seems to want to just talk about headlines and not concentrate and talk about trends. Well, since they're not going to do it, let's just go ahead and lay this out there for you. Right now, the United States is flirting with something that the rest of the world seems to be flirting with as well. And that is populism or nationalism. Now, if you don't have any concept of those words, if you've been living under a rock, okay, they're kind of the belief that we're number one and everybody else can go eat poo. Um, it, it's kind of this belief that you, uh, being a member of the nation, are better than everybody else that's trying to bring down your nation, including, well, It could be anything from immigrants to the person that doesn't agree with whatever political affiliation you went to foreign countries to corporations to any 
anything can be made a quote-unquote enemy of the state very easily through the through the adoptance of, of some sort of form of governments that loves nationalism. And here's the thing that you don't understand. Or if you do understand, well, a brief reminder. Nationalism is close, very, 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 very close to totalitarianism or a single ruler, otherwise known as a dictator. Now, that has to do with, you know, okay, a lot of things. People from time to time, and, and this is the weirdest thing, they forget that by asking for somebody else to take responsibility for so many things in their own lives that they're actually inviting government control over every little thing that they do. And I know what you're thinking. Why? That sounds a lot like Big Brother. Well, as much as guys like Donald Trump and, and other authoritarians around the world try to say things like, hey, you know what? It's not us that are the bad guys. It's the media that's the bad guys. It's the uh, companies out there looking at your data online. They're the true enemies of the state. And then the, at the same time that they're going through and they're making all of these other people perceived enemies of the state, the actions that they actually engage in, you know, trying to secure your freedom by clamping down on all these quote-unquote bad elements of society, well, it further erodes away your personal liberties. Now, in the midterm elections, we all did kind of have a brief moment of sanity where <gasps> it looks like, by and large, the American public have started to reject the authoritarianism and nationalism of the far right. And that's a good thing, because when it comes to 2020, the landscape around the world is going to look radically different than it did going into the 2016 presidential race. And in one respect, it's going to look kind of eerily similar. You see, Donald Trump, when he was elected back in 2016, and groups like the Proud Boys were coming out and admitting to being Western chauvinist, Oh, and then there was a massive uprising of an anti-Muslim movement all across Europe all at the same time. Donald Trump, in the summer of 2016, started to ride this populist wave that was sweeping around the globe. Now, you know, we've talked about some other people like Erdogan, we've talked about Putin, and we've, we've mentioned the Brazilian elections where... They have, in fact, just recently elected a very far-right, pro-torture, oh my God, we should have killed more people when we had the chance, leader. And that trend is happening all around the world. You remember not too long ago, I told you about the rise of fascism in Italy and other European countries as a result of just being afraid of all these immigrants coming into their country. In other words, using racism to start to change the way government works. And look, if you're ever going to use an ism to determine how government works, could it be something other than racism? Could it be something other than classism? 
asking for an entire civilization of humans. Fact of the matter is, is that not too long ago, the country and the world took a brief dip into the far-right political landscape, and as such, country after country is starting to exhibit signs of authoritarianism or outright despotic dictatorships. And these things aren't made overnight. It's not like just somebody gets elected as a freely, you know, democratic candidate, and then all of a sudden, the next night, clamps down on everything and got a dictatorship. No, they do it in very, very clever ways, which is what groups like the Proud Boys are kind of, how do I say, symptomatic of? I mean, you look at groups like this, people that have clearly taken the the wrong pill when Morpheus gave that choice, and, and you see a group of people that has slowly, over time, been indoctrinated, one, into a belief of elitism, and two, into a belief of everything that doesn't reinforce their values being delegitimized. And see, that's how people come to absolute power. And it's one of those things that when we look at the Trump White House, specifically with eh, breaking constitutional norms and putting up this guy named Whitaker over the Mueller investigation, a guy that has been on television time and time and time again telling everybody how much of a witch hunt it is so that he could impress Donald Trump and possibly get a job. <gasps> yeah, that guy. Oh, by the way, he's He's kind of the subject of some lawsuits. We'll talk about that in a sec. But when it comes to all these little breaking of norms and our backlashes, what you got to do is look at the trend of stories like that happening. Okay? And what I mean is Donald Trump has done something that breaks a political norm and consolidates power completely under loyalists to his administration. As such, the United States Constitution has protections against those very same actions. And the more that he keeps doing these actions and the more he compounds them by doing a bunch of them all at once, the less we notice on a whole of the precedents that our current president is making towards swinging the executive branch of the United States into what could resemble, in another country, a dictator's office. Now, totalitarians, uh, they have a very organized system of, of getting things done. And Trump has been a fan of other leaders who seem to be really good at doing those things. For example... Trump really liked Kim Jong-un not too long ago for one simple reason. Now, it's a story that got glossed over because of everything else happening at the time. But we should really look, kind of with our Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass, at the tale of Donald Trump talking about how much he respected Kim Jong-un for when he spoke, everybody paid attention. Remember that statement? I liked it. When he talked, people's paid attention. I want my people to do that as well. Not my fellow countrymen. No, he's already kind of taken ownership of me and you as citizens and called us 
my people or his people. But when you look at his admiration for somebody like a Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un has all those people stand up when he talks because they know if they don't stand up, dear leader will find a hole somewhere and put them and most of their family in there with them. Yeah. The thing is, is that Donald Trump not only likes guys like that, but let's just go ahead and think of all the times that we've seen pictures of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and how happy Trump looks. It's not just because this is, you know, a good manager meeting the CEO of the company that he's shadowingly running. Okay, a bit of a stretch there, but you get the point. Not only is there the whole thing of Putin and Trump seem to have some sort of backdoor deals going with each other thing, but remember, Trump does admire Vladimir Putin's leadership style, a leadership style that has clamped down on a free and open media, has on foreign soil killed dissidents of their country and people that didn't agree <clears throat> journalist as well uh, with the Kremlin well they killed them up to 27 people since 2014 in the UK foreign foreign uh, uh, I'm sorry former Russian citizens have ended up dead under mysterious circumstances with Vladimir Putin's newscast at night actually bragging about well some people fall out of windows some people trip in front of buses now is not a good time to defect from Mother Russia yeah, there was a newscast where they basically were going through the murder list of all the people that were killed under mysterious circumstances and said, yeah, don't mess with Russia. Here's Tom with the weather. Uh, that's scary, by the way. And if you're not frightened, then you're not paying close enough attention. Because not only do people like uh, an Erdogan and a Putin... And, 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 and a Duterte, not only do they go after a free and open media to delegitimize a check on their activities, but they also do something that is an actual act of office that they're capable of doing, that if you don't follow the warning signs, will absolutely lead your country into being a totalitarian regime. And that is stacking the courts. You see, one of the things that we talk about, of course, is Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. But one of the things that we don't really talk about is how many judges the Republicans right now are putting into the judiciary. And this is tilting what is supposed to be an objective, co-equal branch of government towards the favor of one political ideology. In other words, you start to stack the deck. And when it comes to Donald Trump, delegitimizing the media, attacks on the media, is great for two things. One, it really riles up his base, who, by and large, swallow that whole pill and say, oh, yeah, because people make mistakes and typos and get their facts wrong and then have to issue corrections in the media, um, that means that they're all fake and made up and only our man Trump tells us the right news. 
Yeah, not only is he doing that, he's also brandishing so much attention with that type of activity that you don't realize how many people he's stacking in the judicial branch. Or, and this is the thing, because I've, I've brought up the, the, the Saturday Night Massacre in the, in the past. That was that whole thing where, well, Tricky Dick and a guy named Archibald had a little bit of a confrontation. And a lot of people were fired up until, well, Nixon was able to fire the person actively investigating him. It was done over the course of a weekend, and that's why we call it the Saturday Night Massacre. Now, Trump is already doing a Saturday night massacre. One with the appointment of Whitaker, and two with putting as many Supreme Court justices in as possible. Because he's trying to make sure that should his branch fall into any sort of trouble, that there will be some co-conspirators out there ready to let him off the hook. Now, I know what you're thinking, but but Shaggy, we just, just on the left, we wiped the Reds off the table during the midterms. I mean, yeah, sure, they gained a little bit more in the Senate, but God, look at all the stuff that we've done in the, the House, and look at the trends of government. Okay, yeah, those are all signs that we may not be completely lost to this BS, but at the same time, think of it this way. If the president were to get into any trouble right now or any of his co-conspirators, there's a good chance that the judge that would be in charge of said trial would be a GOP appointee and as such would have a little bit more pressure than the normal judge of of coming out to a quote-unquote favorable finding. Now, once you delegitimize the media and you stack the judiciary branch, all it is then is really just a matter of making sure that nobody's paying attention for you to have just long enough to accomplish all of your goals, consolidating your power under yourself and not your constitutionally set up mandated government. So when we look and talk about some of our stories today and groups like Proud Boys and, well, all the other stuff that we're seeing trending in the United States, it should be noted that we are flirting with a very bad form of government, fascism, authoritarianism, totalitarianism. And the bad thing is, is we're not just flirting with it. We're trying to take it home. Jesus. Coming up, we've got some more stories to cover. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Welcome to 60 Second Civics, the daily podcast of the Center for Civic Education. I'm Mark Gage. The Declaration of Independence states that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. In the final draft edited by Congress, the word inalienable was inadvertently changed to unalienable by a copyist. But what does inalienable rights mean? Inalienable rights are rights that we are unable to give up, even if we wanted to. 
According to the concept of inalienable rights found in the Declaration of Independence, liberty is such a right. That means that if we signed a contract to be a slave, we would not have an obligation to keep it. Despite the contract, no one would have a right to enslave us. Having rights that are inalienable does not mean they cannot be attacked by our being arbitrarily killed, imprisoned, or otherwise oppressed. It means that such acts are not not morally justified and that we have a ground for moral complaint. That's all for today's podcast, 60 Second Civics, where civic education only takes a minute. This is Scientific American's 60 Second Science. I'm Lucy Wong. When a friend comes to you after a stressful day, how do you comfort them? Do you let them rant? Do you pour them a glass of wine? Those could work, but a new study finds that a very effective technique is also simple and easy. Hugging. Michael Murphy is a psychology postdoc at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He wanted to know if people who received hugs regularly could handle stress and conflict better. Individuals who report perceiving the availability of a network of supportive individuals tend to show better adaptation when faced with stress. But just because you have a support network doesn't mean that you definitely feel that support. So some researchers have argued that many of the behaviors we use to support others who are stressed might actually be counterproductive because these behaviors uh, might unintentionally communicate to others that they're not competent to manage stress. Murphy and his team interviewed 404 men and women every evening for two weeks. During these interviews, the participants were asked a simple yes or no question whether somebody had hugged them that day, and a simple yes or no question of whether they had experienced conflict or tension with somebody that day. They also were asked questions about their social interactions, uh, how many social interactions they had that day, and uh, responded to questions about negative and positive mood states. And the researchers found that individuals who experienced a conflict were not as negatively affected if they received a hug that day, as were participants who experienced conflict and didn't get a hug. Murphy and his team also saw that people who received a hug didn't carry the negative effect to the next day, while those who did not receive a hug would. The findings are in the journal PLAS One. Murphy does include this caveat. So our findings should not be taken as evidence that people should just start hugging anyone and everyone who seems distressed. The hug from one's boss at work or a stranger on the street, that could be viewed as neither consensual nor positive. The idea is to relieve stress, not add to it. Thanks for listening. For Scientific American 60 Second Science, I'm Lucy Wong. News from the left and the right. From the guy a bit off center and slightly out of his mind. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome back to it. Oh, my God. God, do we have a lot of stuff to cover. But if you've missed any part of this show, hey, feel free to go over to the website, shaggyjenkins.com, and catch up some of our old episodes there, as well as follow us on Spotify or Stitcher. Or, hey, if you like the show so very much, why don't you marry it? No, I'm kidding. Why don't you go over to Patreon and become one of our members? Just look for the Shaggy Jenkins Show right there. I'm, of course, your host, critical thinker, problem solver, guy just left a normal insane, but always centered in common sense. My name is Shaggy Jenkins. I can be found at my website, which is shaggyjenkins.com, or 
Wherever fine social media is patrolled for any of those anti-government statements you could be making to dear father leader at Shaggy Live. I know that last one seems like a little bit of a joke, but we did go into the break talking about United States flirting with totalitarianism. Now, if you need any more evidence of this, I, I got to bring this story up. One, because I, I'm a huge fan of this comedian. Her name, Michelle Wolf. You probably remember her from the last White House Correspondents Dinner where, okay, let's just say that she said some very interesting things and people in the White House disagreed with them pretty solidly. But here's the thing about Michelle Wolf. She has probably brought about one of the biggest signs that this is a government that has a very fragile ego. This is a leader that does not like people having a sense of humor about him. Because, okay, here's the thing. The White House Correspondents' Dinner, usually, and I mean since 1982, has had as far as the host or at least an opening act or somewhere in the evening, they have had stand-up comedians and, you know, late night host and stuff like that come on to kind of give everybody a good old-fashioned roasting you know right before all of the serious stuff kicks in and the white house correspondents recognize each other for certain accomplishments over the the course of the year but okay now here's the thing the white house correspondents dinner has famously been kind of the podium where Comedians take jabs at the president. Everybody remembers that not too long ago, one of the most beloved late-night hosts in America was uh, under threat of death because of how offensive he was at the podium. Um, Stephen Colbert has first-hand experience of going up against a president that won really doesn't like dissent, and two, at a time when a country was really fervently supporting said leader. Yeah, Colbert came out with a bunch of jokes about his good old buddy and pal, George W. Bush, much to the chagrin of a lot of Republicans that were there. Now, there was a whole media fallout from it, and of course, there was a lot of talks, none from Bush himself, by the way, who basically just laughed the whole thing off and went radio silent on it. But from other people saying, oh, this is such a disrespect, and oh, I can't believe they did that. There was an uproar about should a comedian ever host the correspondence dinner again. And then, of course, the next dinner came along, and bada-bing, bada-boom, we're right back to having comedians as a host. But Michelle Wolf might have done something that no man... Pay attention, guys. Think about this. A woman has done something that none of you have managed to do since the 1980s. She has gotten comedy barred from the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Now, of course, the uh, WHCA, so we can call them for short, has, has announced that they're going to be putting on a kind of a different speaker. His name is Ron Kernow. Now, if you're talking about a guy that has some serious chops, Kernow is somebody that does. Uh, he'll be talking about, well, 
everything, actually, doing with the media, the First Amendment, the country that we're in right now, and the political climate. And I'm sure it's going to be very, very fascinating. I mean, this is a guy that's wrote about George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah. I mean, if you can write about Grant other than he drank, he went to war, he drank some more. Um, good on you, mate. But look, this appointment of Kernow over uh, another kind of a comedian or a, a commentator does kind of show, like we were saying before the break, that this is an administration that not only is flirting with totalitarianism, but I know what you're thinking. How is not liking comedy flirting with totalitarianism? Because totalitarianistic people do not like dissent, even if it's dissent in jest, even if it's something that's supposed to be fun and elicit warm and fuzzy feelings a la like a Friars Club roast. No, they will not have any of that stuff. And bowing to kind of pressure, the external pressure that they're under, the White House correspondents has said, yep, we're going to make sure that this terrible thing that happened from Michelle Wolf never happens again and we'll not have a comedian coming back to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Now, I have to say, though, Michelle's response was kind of classic because she did kind of go on the attack and say, ha-ha, I can't believe i do it. She says, as we... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was about to read the, the the wrong quote. But this is the thing. Trump did say about Michelle that, that, that she bombed. Oh, she was terrible. Michelle said today of the White House Correspondent Association, they're cowards. The media right now is being complicit with totalitarian governments. And here's the funny thing. Michelle says, I couldn't be prouder. And to tell you the truth, if she's the last comedian to ever grace the White House Correspondents' Dinner, then I guess there is something to be proud of. You broke one of the tenets of democracy, free speech. Yay? Okay, but the, the fact of the matter remains is this is not Michelle's problem. This is clearly a problem with the White House. This is clearly a problem with us as a country going, oh my God, we're stifling free speech right now because of kind of a president that acts a little bit like a bully and, and, and more like somebody way younger than his 72 years would, would put on. I mean, did you see the whole debacle about Andrew Schiff? He called him little Adam, well, yeah. That other word. But he, look, this is the thing. He did that over the weekend, kind of attacking Schiff for Schiff attacking him over, please, what the hell do you think you're doing with this appointment of Whitaker and trying to stifle the Mueller investigation? You know, kind of one of those things somebody would say if there's an active investigation and somebody looks to be obstructing said investigation. But besides giving him a pretty crappy nickname, Donald Trump went on the attack like he usually does. And this has another representative, Representative Mike Quigley out of Illinois, basically feeling like he's back in middle school. Quote, I feel like I'm back in seventh grade here where we have juvenile name calling. This is important stuff. 
We're talking about protecting the rule of law, and the best the president can do is start calling people's names. Start calling people names. That is one of his quotes that he said on CNN's Newsday, New Day, and and he's right. But it all pays back into that system I was telling you earlier of trying to delegitimize things. Now, if you're wondering who the easiest people to delegitimize an entity in front of is, it's people with juvenile type of thinking, you know, the ones that were respond to name calling and misogyny and racism and things like that. Juveniles, younger mindsets that, that haven't quite got this thing called common sense or decency, compassion, empathy, higher thinking skills, skepticism. You, you get the picture. This type of mentality preys on the intellectually weak. And I, I know, I know, I know. I'm probably going to get in all trouble for saying that, okay, there's a specific type of propaganda that's meant for people of a below a certain IQ bar, but you have to call it what it is. And John, Donald Trump has been really successful at engaging that type of base. So when it comes to calling, you know, Schiff somebody else's name, <clears throat> you know, that's juvenile, but it's effective. And the thing is, is now that Democrats have started to take in the house, uh, started to take the house, the fact of the matter is, is that Donald Trump is going to have to really kind of wonder about will these attacks be as effective in the future when there's an actual Senate willing to question his candor in public. But when it comes to the, the whole infighting on, online, Donald Trump does have a monopoly at name-calling. And now, representatives, and don't get me wrong, this is not just about Democrats. Republicans, especially centrist Republicans that come from kind of purplish-looking states, they constantly deride the president's comments as being anti-productive for their cause. In other words, hey, Mr. President, could you do us a favor and not do stupid stuff because uh, you're going to make sure that we don't get elected if you keep it up. But he keeps it up because to his base, it works. Now, this does not mean that Matt Whitaker's whole appointment isn't going to be scrutinized. As a matter of fact, you can probably say that it's going to be scrutinized fairly heavily, fairly quick. Because it looks like Dems are now suing about Whitaker's appointment. Basically saying that he wasn't constitutionally appointed and that Donald Trump had no right to do it. Will this have any effect on anything, including the, and, and this is the thing from a bunch of other sources in the news, the impending slow choke strangulation of the Mueller investigation, basically what Whitaker was advocating for months and months and months while he was on CNN. They're wondering if we're going to see that or if we're going to see the House of Representatives be able to do something about it before it's too late. Now, this is the thing. If this whole Whitaker thing ends up being another constitutional blunder by the president, of course, he'll play it all off and say, eh, 
hey, you know, I thought it was the right thing to do, but what do I know? I've never been in governments before. And, of course, a lot of people will forgive him. You you remember famously Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have time and time again come out and said publicly, you have to forgive the president. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. How the hell is he still president if he does? Okay. Okay. Now is not the time for rhetorical questions that clearly need answering, Shaggy. Instead, we have to talk about something else. Before we run out of time today, two things have been happening in the news rather, uh, okay, rather loudly here in the last 24 hours, but for the most part, rather politically motivated here in the United States. Okay, not too long before the midterms, Donald Trump started talking about this migrant caravan. You remember that? It was full of all these MS-13 people, uh, Middle Easterners, because, of course, if you're from the Middle East, and I mean nothing other than being from the Middle East. That means that you're a terrorist. Um, they could have also been members of ISIS and all kinds of bad people in there. Well, that, that, that group that Donald Trump kept talking about over and over and over again leading up to the midterms actually led him to take some sort of executive action. He deployed some 5,200-plus men and women along the southern border and told them, stop these migrants and stuff. Okay? Well, here's the thing. The United States Army can't function within the United States as a law enforcement arm. It's, it's very highly illegal. And, as such, they can't really be deployed without some sort of mandate keeping them deployed for too long of a time before, well, by policy they can be recalled at the discretion of their generals. And that seems to be what's happening now. Uh, news out of the southern borders is that the army deployment that's been going on there will cease unless some sort of mandate is given by December 15th, with a lot of troops going ahead and starting to pack it up now. Now, there's been some requests from the Department of Homeland Security and stuff for them to back up our border guard as the migrants make their way here. But, yeah, Pentagon was quick to shoot that down once again by saying, uh, that's a you problem, not an us problem. We can't function. And if you're making a mandate saying that we can function within the borders, well, the director of the Department of Homeland Security needs to read a book. Ouch! Sick burn, dude. But, getting back to the crux of this story, December 15th seems to be the cut-off date. Unless there is a mandate that could keep troops out there. And here's the thing. I don't think that mandate's going to come. Because, alright, if you're familiar with this situation, you know what happened. Migrant caravan, some... 1,200 miles away from the United States southern border becomes hot news thanks to the president saying that they're full of all kinds of bad elements and they're heading towards America at lightning speed. And America must be ready to act in a militaristic fashion to all of these bad elements that are coming to our borders. So, 
he sent a bunch of troops down there and, of course, a bunch of tweets time after time after time after time on Fox News, on anybody that would listen to him kind of outlets, and, of course, his personal Twitter feeds. Donald Trump said time and time again how terrible this migrant force was. But, problem. They were thousands of miles away when he decided to deploy the troops. So, a couple of weeks ahead of the midterm, Trump says, Democrats are too weak on immigration, and oh my God, they probably led to all of these bad people coming here. I, Donald Trump, have to protect you, so what I will do is I'll send the army down there, and that's exactly what he did. And some people were kind of scratching their heads going, how are they going to be a threat over a thousand miles away? And exactly what is the United States Army, who can't function as a law enforcement body within the United States, what exactly are they going to do to curb all that? And so for the last couple of weeks, they've been putting up barbed wire and fighting off long periods of nothing to do with no electricity and terrible conditions. Yeah, the Army is basically finding southern Texas worse than some of their desert deployments. But that could be over soon, because December 15th is the cutoff date, and, drumroll please, that mandate probably won't come, because here's the thing. Not only was there the migrant uh, 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 rhetoric, you know, oh, these migrants are horrible people and they're coming to take us away, ha-ha, not only was there that from the White House, there was also the whole Democratic conspiracy thing. Remember? The Democrats probably probably made this migrant caravan happen. Oh, the Democrats that made the migrant caravan happen are probably all funded by George Soros under the direction of the Clintons. And yeah, these were things that actually came out. And it seemed a little weird that the United States Army was being deployed for what really was nothing more than an escalation of the kind of rumor and uh, gossip mongering that Trump had been partaking of on his Twitter account since day one. I, I, I mean of him having a Twitter account, not of his presidential administration. But here's the thing. It now has come to light that all of that stuff seemed to be a little bit of a political maneuver. The administration basically came out and said, you know that border deployment that we did? Yeah, we were trying to ramp up support for Republicans ahead of the midterm elections more than we were trying to fight a legitimate threat. And as such don't really expect to see a mandate come down the tubes because we made the whole thing up. Now, of course, I'm loosely paraphrasing here, but if you want to know how serious they are about admitting that this was all an escalation, they gave it a price tag. This using the United States Army for political gain cost me and you some 200 million dollars. And now with the administration admitting that it was all done for political gain, all to kind of ramp up support for the Republicans ahead of the midterms, 
you got to kind of ask yourself, if you are one of those people in, in uniform right now, <sighs> suffering in terrible, scorching kind of southern Texas boredom, um, you got to be asking yourself, what the hell am I serving for? Because as much as Republicans like to use veterans to kind of, you know, I hate to use the word like this, but it is kind of in the dictionary, trump up support behind the troops and trump up some patriotism a la nationalism. Anytime they want to go to these veterans and use them, how willing in the future will veterans be knowing that now they can be used as political pawns? And for me and you, we should really be arguing with this whole price tag. Because if you think about it, that means that Donald Trump, on the back of the United States taxpayers, enjoyed some $200 million in public relations stunting. That's it. No legitimate threat, no imminent invasion, no MS-13, no Taliban, no Al-Qaeda, no nothing. No ISIS, nada. Nothing, nobody but tumbleweeds and a bunch of hot air. Both out of the president and surrounding everybody in the southern United States. But the fact of the matter is, is that the president used me and you at least our tax dollars, and used our soldiers in a $200 million political stunt. And that's probably one of the only reasons that he was able to maintain hold of the House, I'm sorry, of the Senate. He lost the House of Representatives. But the Senate control did have to do, when it came down to it, national security. A lot of the older population, <clears throat> white people, voted along the lines of what makes us secure. And Donald Trump played on those fears. Now remember, as soon as the elections were over and the results started rolling in, no more caravan talk, no more nothing. And now, in the aftermath of it, we're finding out that the whole thing was nothing but a BS lie made up so that the president could look tough. And I know earlier in the show we were talking about authoritarianism and totalitarianism, and this is one of the symptoms of it, a leader that always has to appear tough despite not having an actual enemy. Because you know what happens if you're trying to prop yourself up as, as the, 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 the people's champion? Well, you cock an eyebrow up and you... Have Samoans in your family like The Rock. Or, if you're Donald Trump, if you can't find an enemy, you make up one. And this made-up enemy, this boogeyman that, that Trump invented, right ahead of the midterm elections, once again, for no other purpose than currying votes and favors of the American electorate, Donald Trump used our armed forces, hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars, all in a bid to seem tough, not only tough to Democrats, 
but tough to other people around the, the country who might get this idea that they're going to mess with Mr. D. The fact of the matter remains is that we very much need some checks and balances on this president, uh, not now, but right now. Because whenever you start to use your army as a wing of political influence, now, this isn't the first time he's tried. Remember the big military parade that he wants that all fascists around the world get? Yeah. Donald Trump is trying to politicize the United States Armed Forces. And if you're in the Armed Forces, you should be pissed. I mean, okay, to be honest, everybody tries to politicize you, but this time, it's blatant. Hey, until next time, have a safe week. Love you, mean it. Kaden, bye.